Hey crew, before we get started today, I just wanted to remind you to register to vote in the general election this November 3rd. Whether you do it in person or you're voting by mail, you can even do it early in some districts. Get it done. Go to vote.gov to register or if you need to check your registration or if you have questions. We're going to be talking about the election and politics next week on the show, but time is ticking away for you to apply for an absentee ballot if you want to vote that way. So you need to take care of that right now. You may be able to register at the polls in your state on the day, but if you're not sure, please still go to vote.gov and double check that that's an option for you before you go. Make your voice heard. Vote. Jason Inman is my guest on the show today, and I had a great time talking to him. Jason has a new graphic novel coming out this fall called Jupiter Jet and the Forgotten Radio, and you can pre-order it now. It comes out on November 10th of this year. We say October 7th like a couple of times in the episode, but it's now November 10th. If you like comic thrills and pulp action and plucky heroes, Jupiter Jet will be your jam. So give it a look and pre-order it now. I'll leave a link in the show notes so you can do exactly that. That's it for me. Enjoy my talk with Jason. And with that, let's get underway. Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and I've given a million ladies a million Vulcan neuropressures, and they all meant something. I'm joined on this episode by Jason Inman. Jason is a writer, producer, and presenter whose works include science, the elements of dark energy, and super soldiers, a salute to the comic book heroes and villains who fought for their country. He's also the co-host of the Geek History Lesson podcast, along with Ashley V. Robinson. His latest graphic novel, Jupiter Jet and the Forgotten Radio, comes out on October 7th. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Anytime we can talk about the NX-01 is a good time for me. I agree. Permission to come aboard granted. (laughs) Yeah, open the docking port, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) Today we'll be talking about Similitude, the 10th episode of the third season of Star Trek Enterprise. The mission of Starfleet is to go boldly, but there's a reason that boldness is a prerequisite. Discovering strange new worlds means that each one could present some new, unfamiliar hazard, and any new life and new civilizations that you encounter could become a future friend or a present enemy. The responsibility and the uncertainty of Starfleet service are magnified for the captain of a starship, who holds not only the success of the mission, but also the lives of the crew in their hands. And sometimes, a commander may be forced to judge the value of one to be more precious than the other. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Jason, it's it's great to have you on the show. And I always ask first-time guests to the show how they first discovered Star Trek. How did you become a Star Trek fan? Uh, well, this is going to date me a little bit, okay. but... You know, I first came to Star Trek with Encounter at Farpoint, Star Trek The Next Generation, um, because when that episode was premiering in 1987, it made all of the local news, the evening news at the time. Yeah. And my parents, who are not into science fiction, 
were like, we should check this out. We should watch it. <laughs> wow. And I remember on a Saturday night at 6 p.m. on the local KSN, the NBC affiliate, they aired Encounter at Farpoint. And my parents were out pretty quickly, and I was in for life. And I watched <laughs> TNG every Saturday night at 6, at 6 p.m. You could not pull me away from it. And right. I was there, and I watched Space Nine and, and Voyager and Enterprise. I had to watch at various different times because I was in college, of course, by that point. But uh, that's truly how, uh, when Star Trek came back for the next generation, I was one of those people. That's amazing. Uh, I don't know if you were like regional or, or out in the sticks, but having it on NBC is incredible. It only made UHF where I was. Oh yeah, I, I was. We, we were. I'm from like southeast Kansas, okay. and uh, right. KSN is like one of those stations where they're like, we're part of the four states. Even though I know there's a lot of those areas across the United States. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but for for me. That's like Missouri, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Arkansas, okay, and I'm in the, like the bottom corner of Kansas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, yeah. It was. I remember that it was on like the um, one of the bigger UHF uh, stations in town, and they made a huge deal. I mean, of course, you know, the marketing worked on your parents. It was a huge deal across the country, yeah. but they showed a lot of TOS, and there's a huge ramp up to it. So that's kind of what sucked me in at that time too. When I was a kid, man, I got so mad when they announced Star Trek: D Space Nine. And the ABC affiliate bought it. Oh, no. And put it on at Saturday late night. Like it was like 11.30 p.m. on right. Saturday nights. And I was so furious. And I never, I didn't understand syndication, of course. And I was like, why are these on different channels? Right. Yeah. <laughs> at least they weren't in competing time slots because then you're screwed oh. with a VCR. Yeah. I was, I was lucky with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're also heavily involved in comics. How did you become a comics fan? You know, uh, for me, again, it's, it's all these like little, these, I mean, this is why big events or big new jumping on points really work. For me, weirdly, my jumping on point for comic books was um, the death of Superman. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I remember, again, it hit the news, and I remember going into a gas station not long after. And this is when gas stations had comic books. Right. And they had the entire collection of death of Superman. Yeah. And I had to buy it. And I remember reading that for the first time and realizing that like, oh, hey, here's Wonder Woman's here and Batman's here and right. Green Lantern's here. And it was the first time that I realized that there was such a thing as a shared universe. I thought yeah. all these guys were in different different universes, you know, because to me, Star Trek was different from Star Wars. So Darth Vader never met Captain Picard. So for me, Batman never met Superman. But then when I saw them all in the same book, I was like hooked for life. I, I became like a continuity junkie. And I'm proud to say as well, I still own that copy that trade paperback that I've read a billion times of The Death of Superman. That's nice. I'm sure it's uh, fairly dog-eared at this point. It is. I, I, I got uh, the Death of Superman creator, Dan Jurgens to sign it a couple years ago. And yes, he was like, oh, this is very well read. <laughs> yeah, I love giving things to sign to creators. And they're like, are you sure? <laughs> like, the cover's like torn off. Yeah, but okay, sure. I remember... Everybody loves it, though. Yeah, yeah, they love that. Uh, I uh, I remember that I had a friend who cut class the day, that Wednesday or Tuesday, I think it was, uh, when the Death of Superman, uh, the actual death issue came out, and he got the, he had to get the black bagged one, you know. Oh, with, with the, the little uh, armband. Yeah, with the S on the cover, and, and uh, he was so convinced that that was going to be worth so much money. Um and I mean, I guess 75 cents now. Yeah. Yeah. They printed quite a few of them, as we all learned uh, when we all bought 10 copies of X-Men number one. <laughs> yeah. So just trying to explain the speculator market to, to younger fans is uh, is difficult. A lot of tears involved. Um, do you have a favorite character, uh, favorite comic character? 
For me, my favorite comic character is easily uh, Richard Grayson Nightwing. Mm. Um, now, of course, being from Kansas and growing up on a farm, a lot of people think it's Superman. Well, Superman's my number two. Okay. The reason why I like Richard Grayson is because he's the first comic book character that comic book fans got to see grow up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think it's Peter Parker. And yeah, Peter Parker went to college and did all this stuff like that. But like this was the first sidekick to graduate to actual hero. And when Dick Grayson was created back in 1939, he was viewed as the audience because a lot of people all in the editors at national comics at the time, as it was called, right. um, they thought that kids could not relate to Batman. So they introduced Robin because the audience could feel like, oh, they're Robin. They're with Batman on all his adventures. And yeah. so the fact that they grew this guy up and, and, and also I like to say this. And, and when I worked for DC Comics uh, a couple years back, they one of the questions they ask you in the interview process is, who is your favorite DC Comics character? <laughs> and I gave this explanation for Nightwing, as I said, Batman can never defeat crime. But he did take a scared 12-year-old boy and raise them until adulthood. And that boy went to lead on to lead the Justice League. Yeah. And that's Batman's greatest success because Batman can never, no matter how hard he tries, you know, snuff out crime. But he can make a scared, frightened boy into a functioning human being, yeah. into a real hero. And that's why he's my favorite character. Yeah. That's a great story. I, I wonder if people, if they know about that question and they think, oh, I've got to, I've got to beep the question. How do I do this? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go in and I'm going to say crazy quilt, but I'm going to sell them on it. Like it's really going to, it's really going to make sense. King. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> of course, you've turned your love for comics into a career, having written several graphic novels uh, and a work of nonfiction related to comics. And you also work for DC Comics hosting the DC All Access web show, which as a comics fan, that must have been something else. Uh, yeah, it was like one of the greatest jobs in the world. In fact, it really didn't feel like a job because <laughs> I constantly got to interview and talk to people that I admired and was fans of. And oh, to be yeah. honest with you, um, I think it did nothing but make me a better writer or make me a better creator because here I was getting to pick the brains of people I admired. I know it was a great job. And also they gave me way too many Superman toys. Um, <laughs> Because that's one of the benefits of the job, right? Is that you get a lot of the free <laughs> sure. swag. Yeah. Because um, it's just sitting around and they're just like, here, take it, here, take it. I And for three years, I was like, yes, yes, yes. But uh, <laughs> now I'm paying for that hard because there's too many, I have too many rooms with Superman stuff. I've got Superman <laughs> stuff all over the place. Um, I, you know, as in my time as a fan going to cons and uh, later as a journalist, like interviewing creators, I never get used to meeting the people whose work that I've read and idolized for years. And that goes for Star Trek, too. You know, there's a transition period when you meet somebody, you know, famous. You go from knowing them as a personality and then becoming aware of them as, oh, this is like a real person. There's like a mm-hmm. little switch. But there's always a there's still a disconnect for me. Uh, yeah, I agree. I, you know, but I find that most of those people um, and I this is a trick that I learned very early on in my interviews is that most of these people will give you better interviews when you just treat them as another person. Like you treat them as a friend yeah. that that. You treat them as a friend, even though it's the first time you've ever talked to them. Yeah. And when you treat it like that, people are very conversational and very comfortable. And, you know, um, you can be a fan after, Yeah. you know, like yeah. after the interview. But if you're a fan before, that's where they're going to put their guard up. But, yes, I understand, like, there are some people that I'm still uh, I mean, every time I got to talk to Jim Lee or when I would pass Jim Lee in the hallway, I would be, oh, still man. be very nervous. <laughs> oh, I'd be like, oh, 
<laughs> working with Jim Lee. Yeah, yeah. The water cooler. Oh my God. Well, let's let's talk about uh, let's talk about Jupiter Jet. Um, sure. You uh, you've got a new graphic novel in the Jupiter Jet series. Uh, tell me about Jupiter Jet and what inspired her. Uh, well, Jupiter Jet all came from. Uh, uh, my co-writer, Ashley Victoria Robinson, when we were having dinner one night and she just said, I've always wanted to write a character called Jupiter Jet. And as soon as she said that, for some reason, some synapse sparked in my brain. And I said, and I blurted out, she's a 16-year-old redhead girl with a jetpack. <laughs> okay. And she flies in space. And that's all I said. And then from there, it created this whole thing. And we came up with this epic um because in our dream world, Jupiter Jet is five volumes. Um, she starts at 16 and she finishes um, at uh, 20. Mm -hmm. um, so 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. This is why I write, folks. I'm not good at math. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's all about, you know, we wanted to take, because Jupiter Jet, it, for lack of a better term, is, is the superhero. Right. Um, although she's more of a retro steampunk superhero, like the Rocketeer kind of idea, because in volume one, uh, her drive is all about she can't pay the rent and they're going to be kicked out of their home. And it's 1935. OK. Um, and so she's stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. And she gets into a lot of fights with her younger brother, Chuck, who is 10 and her sidekick when she wants to help out the neighborhood more than helping out her. Um, and that's sort of the conflict of the first series. And in the first series, she learns the truth behind her home and her city, Olympic Heights that she lives in. And what's really going on with the Praetors, who are sort of the alien villains that uh, have robots and all these advanced machinery that sort of live around Olympic Heights. And she learns the real truth about them. Hmm. Um, and then volume two, it's a year jump. She's now 17. She's grown into her role as a superhero. So she's now famous. Everybody in Olympic Heights knows who Jupiter Jet is. They trust her. They think she's a really good hero. And she, that's not enough for her. And now she's like, you know what? I really want to like find these Praetors, these aliens and these robots. And I want to root them out. And I want to fly up into orbit and to other planets. And I want to just like stop them completely. And every adult in her life tells her the truth that all adults know but when you're a teenager, you don't know that the world doesn't work the way you think it does and right. that every task you take on is not going to be that simple. And that is the lesson that Jupiter Jet is going to fly right into um, in Jupiter Jet and the Forgotten Radio. And of course, as the title um, supposes, there is her little brother finds Chuck, finds a device, a radio that has been broadcasting for years um, and also has a lot of other secret and super abilities that will help them in their task of defeating the Praetors. That's great. It seems like it has a really fun, like, pulp aesthetic. Were you a fan of uh, of pulps growing up? Yeah, I, I yes. I'm very much a fan of, um, and this is one of the things that pulps did, is, like, I love the idea that you can hand a person a story and they don't need to know anything else. Yeah. And that's something that we try to do. Like, even though this is Jupiter Jet and the Forgotten Radio is volume two, there's a reason why we didn't call it Jupiter Jet volume two, mm -hmm. because we wanted it to be kind of like the Indiana Jones, like, cause you can watch <laughs> yeah. Temple of Doom yeah. and you can watch, um, Last Crusade without knowing the first one. Now you get more if you've seen it sure but like jupiter jet and the forgotten radio you can read on its own like there's a little bit of a recatch and basically i mean basically all you need to know is that she has a jetpack and she's a good guy that's yeah. it yeah good right <laughs> yeah. um but yeah we really wanted it to be just fun simple and also like perfect for all ages and 
I mean all ages when I say all ages. I don't mean it. To, a lot of people will take that as, oh, that means that you're going to talk down to me. No, 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 no. What I mean all ages, I mean like Pixar. I mean that an eight-year-old can watch this yeah. and get something out of it, but so can a 40-year-old man. A 40-year-old sure. man will read it as well and still like it. It does not talk down to them. Um, and that's what we really wanted to do. Like, I, We really wanted to make this fun, accessible adventure series for everyone. Yeah. As a kid that grew up in the grim and gritty 90s, uh, I've been pleased to see that, you know, many creators are making comics that embrace the fun adventure stories uh, like the pulps, but with an updated sensibility featuring more female and POC characters, too. Yeah, that, and that was kind of the idea, like right out the gate. That was what we were thinking about. I mean, I will give you a spoiler. Uh, Jibberjet and the Forgotten Radio has a nine panel grid in it, in its second chapter uh, featuring a cat. So if you're a cat <laughs> fan, sign up. Okay. Sold. I like, too, that it sounds like it's following uh, that similar path that uh, you were talking about Nightwing being, Nightwing being on, uh, starting as a, a very uh, nascent, you know, like young, innocent hero and kind of learning a little bit about how the world works and how to be a superhero as she goes. Yeah, like our, our ultimate goal uh, for Jupiter Jet is, is that by the time she finishes the series, um, she will be a fully actualized leader. Okay. Um, because I think that's what we want all of our leaders to be. We want them to be actual heroes. Yeah. Um, and by the time she gets to the final volume, and by the way, we already know the final scene of this entire series. Like we did a little JK Rowling, Harry Potter thing where we were like, okay, what is the last scene of volume five? Yeah. Um, and we already have basically already written it. It's in a document and we know exactly where we're going. <laughs> okay. And I, Nobody, I think, is ever going to predict it in a million years. But that's exactly right. Like, this is the path of her watching her grow up. Because if you read volume one of Jupiter Jet, she's very nervous and she's very unsure of herself. And mm. she's even very unsure about being Jupiter Jet and being this hero. And in volume two, she's like, nope, Jupiter Jet is who I am. And this is what I do. And I know how to do it better than anybody. That's That sounds great. And I hope that fans uh, will take a time to check that out. Of course, it's coming out on October 7th of this, of this year. Uh, and people can pre-order it. Yeah, you can pre-order at your local comic book shop or on Amazon, Walmart.com. And uh, as most people should know, I hope they know, uh, book pre-orders really matter. So uh, if this sounds intriguing, please go pre-order it. Yeah, that sounds great. I want to talk quick about Real Life Heroes and your book, Super Soldiers, which looks at the connections between military-themed heroes and comic books and real-life servicemen and women. Where'd the idea for that book come from? Uh, so I always had wanted to write sort of a book, um, sort of combining and collaging my time in the military, because I'm a veteran of the United States Army, mm -hmm. and I sort of lost connection with comic books right before I joined. Mm -hmm. um, I think we all do. I think um, a lot of people, when they get to their early adulthood or late teens, you sort of like, there's a time in your life, I think this happens for most comic fans, where you're like, ah, comic books, really? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Maybe girls are better, or maybe boys are better. Right. You know, however, right. you, however you fall on that spectrum. Um, and for me, I got back into comic books literally in Iraq. When I was um, deployed to Iraq in 2005, I got a care package in it with uh, a Superman issue and an Ultimate X-Men issue. And the Ultimate X-Men issue, Wolverine had a soul patch and Nightcrawler was like an assassin. And I remember reading this being like, 
who are these X-Men? Yeah. What is going on here? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I immediately like wrote my family and said, um, go find this ultimate X-Men book and send me more because I really need to know what is going on. <laughs> and that started me back into comic books. So ever since then, for me, there's a lot of connection between the military and comic books. And I thought yeah. the perfect way, there's a lot of military veterans actually in comic books as yeah. characters. And I thought it would be an interesting way to examine um, basically the book is a way to, for me to be like this aspects of their story remind me of this time in my military or what this is, or this is completely unrealistic, or this is very realistic. And, um, each chapter is based around a different hero. I cover like, of course, the, the most well-knowns, Captain America, Captain Marvel, mm-hmm. uh, war machine. And you might be surprised who I think are really good representations and who aren't. I'm always fascinated by how many superheroes have a military or, or like a law enforcement background. And I guess the parallel is clear for a lot of them being heroes and protectors. What's interesting to me is that many of their origins are connected to a specific historical conflict and also the context of that time in which it happened. And of course, the timeline of comics, it's very elastic because many of these characters are over 80 years old. Not every superhero can be frozen in ice like Cap or be immortal like Wonder Woman. So the conflicts in which they got their start, they often have to be updated. Yeah, uh, the most recent example that I can think of off the top of my head is that many people don't realize that Tony Stark first had his accident in the Vietnam War. Yeah. Um, And then I believe it was Warren Ellis that updated it to Afghanistan, and now it has been updated again to nameless desert conflict. Okay, sure. (laughs) It's, It's somewhere where there's a desert and the army was there. It's yeah. It, I can see that because you know we've had a couple desert conflicts in, in yep, our recent history, yep. <laughs> but maybe it's um, also a move to sort of depoliticize it. And it's also yes. it's a little depressing because I think when you just say nameless desert conflict, unfortunately, to the average American, they go, "Okay, that makes sense. We're off yeah. somewhere." Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they keep updating conflicts, you know, more and more, and I think they're going to do it, you know, through the next century as well. Um, but personally, I believe that. Uh, Frank Castle is firmly entrenched in the Vietnam War for me. Yeah. And I kind of like the idea that he's just this crazy 60-year-old or 70-year-old wandering <laughs> yeah. around yeah. taking out. I think there's I think it makes it more interesting if he's that if he's older. Yeah, plus um that great uh was it Garth Ennis did that great yeah. uh, Theory Days mm-hmm. Gone By series and he's like, nah, screw screw Afghanistan or whatever. It's Vietnam. That's really important. Yeah. Especially with a guy like Fury who could be a guy that's from World War II and just keeps taking the infinity formula, right? And just keeps uh, staying young. Well, that also comes with the question too. And it's a debate that I, a lot of people have had that, you know, the, to me, one of the biggest characters that's tied to an event is Magneto, of course, tied to the Holocaust. Um, but if that character is tied to the Holocaust now, that means he's 90. Yeah. So you can't really have a 90 year old supervillain. So they're obviously going to have to update that somehow. Um, I've heard a lot of people and I kind of, uh, agree with this. Um, a lot of people think that he should be updated to be African hmm. and he should be a survivor of, uh, Rwanda. Oh, sure. Oh boy. That's wow. That's chilling. Yeah. I'm kind of, I'm kind of for that actually. Yeah. I'm not against that. Cause I was having a conversation about this exact thing the other day and I was thinking, you know, from a, an intellectual property perspective. I mean, I guess they can never get rid of Magneto, but maybe like we should start phasing that character out and looking for characters or creating characters that could be connected to 
like you said, the Rwandan genocide or or other events. Like maybe it's okay to let that guy go. But as long as you've got like Nick Fury and Captain America and people always bringing up the past in World War II, um, maybe we're just stuck with it for now. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, yeah, I don't know if we're going to lose World War II in any kind of media until maybe that generation has passed on yeah. either. Yeah. Well, why did you choose Back to Trek? Why did you choose this specific episode, Similitude, to discuss today? I picked Similitude because Enterprise gets more flack than it deserves, my friend. <laughs> it does. Um, it is not as bad as anybody thinks it is. And Similitude, for me, is the finest Enterprise episode. Interesting. Um, I think it takes everything that Enterprise did right and amps it up. I think it's a very – it has a, such a strong character arc mm-hmm. in this episode. Um and I also think the best Trek episode should make you feel something. And I think if you mm-hmm. get to the end of this episode and you don't feel anything for Sim, then you are heartless. Why are you watching this? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As a part of my ongoing Trek education, I just finished a full watch of Star Trek Voyager. And it's a show that I'd seen most of, but not the entire thing. Mm-hmm. And going through the whole thing really evolved some of the ideas that I had and some preconceptions that I had about the series. When it comes to Enterprise... I think I've seen like the 15 most important episodes, like the really big plot ones or the ones that are on top 10 lists, but I haven't seen the whole thing yet. And so it's the Trek show that I really know the least about. It's interesting because Enterprise is definitely sort of uh, for I, I this is not an intentional pun. I apologize. I'm just using this phrase. <laughs> the best on. of both worlds. Yeah, <laughs> um, because it is a serialized show. Yeah, because threads do carry on similitude actually affects the rest of the third season of enterprise. Mm-hmm. Um, but also it's very episodic, which to me is like, I think I find refreshing nowadays. Like I love shows now where they're, where it's like this perfect kind of, you know, threads carry through, but you don't need to watch every episode mm-hmm. anymore. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Cause I think we've gotten too far down the game of Thrones line where everything yes. has to be connected because to me, those shows, every time you watch the new season, you're like, okay, what was going on? I forgot it all. Cause right. it's so complicated. Yeah. Um, but enterprise also has the advantage of being post star Trek Voyager. And you can tell there's a lot of stuff in enterprise that is a definite reaction to star trek voyager because star trek voyager um i like it a lot has it's very uneven yeah it's almost like every three seasons or every two seasons voyager completely changes the tone of its show mm-hmm. and you're just like oh what okay now we're not a show about the monkey now we're a show about insane sci-fi two-parters oh now we're not about that now we're about all of the doctor. Right. <laughs> what? Right. <laughs> um, and, and, and then you can look at the production history of Voyager and you can kind of see like, well, they switch showrunners almost every two seasons. So yeah, that explains yeah. a lot of it. Um, whereas Enterprise, um, it's interesting. Enterprise's tone shifts are due to the network. Yeah. You know, and, and it's very interesting that it's trying to react like its first two seasons are very much like. They were too comfortable, but they did go back to the TOS thing of like, let's park three strong characters right in the front and base the whole show around the three characters. Mm -hmm. Um, And yes, Reed and Hoshi and Mayweather suffer because of that. But also like by the time you get to the end of Enterprise, I mean, I think you really love Trip to Paul and Archer. Yeah. And Archer also has the almost the most complete character arc of any of the Star Trek captains. Oh, sure. Yeah. 
I think that like the more just to that point, like the more I watch of Enterprise, I know that like for myself, like you used a comics example before about how you had a period where you kind of stepped away from comics. Like, oh, I'm not sure if this is me going forward. That was me uh, near the end of Voyager and the beginning of Enterprise. It was like, this is a, this is a lot of track. And now there's this series that's going to be set way in the past of the franchise. Is that the right way to go? But having seen more and more of it, I really, I really like that pitch, that concept for a show. And I can really see how they wanted to differentiate it from earlier shows, you know, like Voyager, showing that humanity isn't quite the tea-swilling, you know, soft-spoken diplomats that they'd eventually become. Like, it's it's rough and tumble. And to your point about, like, Archer, like, I just watched the premiere uh, recently just to get it back in my head. And, like, going from that to the end, like, you really do see Archer, like, go through a whole thing and change mm-hmm. a lot. Um, and that's, that's, you know, they're to be commended for that. Well, yeah, and it's interesting, too, with Archer, because um, in season one, especially in the pilot, he's very much gee golly. He's like, gee golly, let's go look for some aliens. Yeah, we got to find these aliens. And, <laughs> yeah, and, and and when you see that you're in the first season, you're kind of like, this guy's going to get his ass kicked. Like, <laughs> he's just not going to last very long. <laughs> he's going to find somebody he punches and they don't fall down, and then he's in trouble. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and, th- and then... Um, the Zindi arc turns him into like this just very, very Cisco like captain yeah. where it's almost like Cisco pushed to, to like 12. Mm-hmm. And then in the fourth season, he sort of finds the balance like he finds the balance between um, the hard nosed military man and the explorer. And in the middle of the fourth season, you kind of look at him and the way they're portraying that character and the way he's bringing these alliances together and the way he's able to talk to the Andorians and Tellarites in ways that the Vulcans can't. Yeah. And you look at that character portrayal and you're kind of like, Hmm, I see where Kirk comes from now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I see how this guy births Kirk. Yeah. It's, it's a throwback too. I think that this show enterprise feels more like a military or Naval fiction than any Trek series has since TOS or the TOS films. They're not living on a cruise ship like Picard and crew. It's rougher. You know, it's more regulated. Um, When I was watching the premiere, like there was a whole sequence that's basically set up like a submarine movie, you know, where the Enterprise is hiding from from the uh, Suliban and they're dodging depth charges like in Das Boot. And I never like I never thought of it as like, oh, this is like totally a submarine movie. That's what they're doing. There's a there's a great episode in the second season of Enterprise called The Catwalk. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't like it, but I really do because it's the idea that they find this phenomenon. There's some sort of plasma storm or cosmic whatever that's going to that they don't have. If they had shields, they'd be fine, but they <laughs> right. don't. They no only shield. have hole plating. Yeah. So the only place of the NX-01 that can take that radiation that will just kill them instantly is the radiation shielding of the nacelles. Mm-hmm. So the entire sh- they abandon the entire ship and they go live in the catwalk for like two weeks. <laughs> and, you know, and then, of course, there's a complication because they discover like, oh, wait a minute. Somebody turned on the warp engine. Someone's on our ship. Oh, no. <laughs> um, but a lot. But a lot of the episode is this, you know, I think there's only 86 people on the NX-01. Yeah. Like it's 86 people all living in one of the nacelles. In tubes. <laughs> and- yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, I like that Archer feels more like a, a sea captain to me, too, like with his privileges of rank. You know, he can bring his dog. He gets T-bone steaks. Well, presumably the crewmen are eating reconstituted protein. You know, in Picard's time, everybody can have a steak, but your rank and your posi- position affects much more the kind of life that you're living in the 22nd century. Yeah, very much so. It also feels, and this is something I really appreciate, it feels more like you're watching NASA astronauts, mm-hmm. um, which I really do. Like, I actually love the uniforms of Enterprise. I think they're a nice, like, I like how they, they, they echo the TNG era uniforms, but, like, they look very utilitarian. Although yeah. there are a lot of zippers and pockets in weird places. Yeah. That's the one gripe. <laughs> <laughs> but I think they look great, and I, I love the idea I love the idea of um, there's a very early episode in season one where they land on their first planet and Archer brings his dog and they're like, let's take pictures. And you're like, yeah, that's what real people would be like (laughs) (laughs) when you go to the first alien planet ever. Yeah. Um, And and also because of that, I also think that's the reason why this crew is the one that sometimes goes to the most extremes, because Gene Roddenberry always called Star Trek wagon train to the stars and in a lot of ways enterprise feels like a cowboy show more so than the original series like there are a lot of times in enterprise where these people are like shoot them dead yeah shoot them dead and and, but because they have no help they're the only ship out there that's their only choice yeah nobody's coming yeah (laughs) yeah nobody they they cannot you know um if if the episode the TNG episode have you seen disaster? Yeah. Okay, when the whole ship just shuts down yeah. um and they're on their own and they have to crawl, you know, they have to hope that Data's head can turn the engines back on. Yeah. Um that ain't happening in Enterprise. In Enterprise, if the whole ship shuts down, they dead. Yeah, they're they're out of luck. <laughs> <laughs> I got to ask you before we move on the really important question, are you pro theme or anti theme? Oh man. Ah, uh, that's the most divisive issue, probably. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I'll say this. I like the song. Yeah. I don't like the version they use. Interesting. Okay. Um, because I if you listen to the lyrics, I think it does fit yeah. the show. But I don't know why they were like, let's go for a southern rock tone. Right. Like yeah. I don't know why they chose that. <laughs> um, I think you really I think if if somebody just had a nice guitar, yeah, get rid of the electric. Like, I think if you had like a Bob Seger type with just an acoustic <laughs> guitar singing the song, oh man, it'd work. I think it really work. Oh, I want to hear that. So blow the whole budget. I don't care. I want to hear that so bad. Um, but I will say this: uh, I do think Enterprise has the best opening credits of every Star Trek show, just yeah. because that montage and the way it's edited is gorgeous. Yeah. They they knew exactly what they wanted. And yeah, I do think it works really well. But also, I will say this to defend the theme a little bit. Um, by that point, we'd had TNG, DS9, and Voyager. And yeah. DS9 and Voyager, although DS9 is my favorite Trek series, DS9 and Voyager in a lot of ways just kind of repeated the same stuff that TNG. So we had a decade mm-hmm. of the same type of storytelling. And you can tell right out the gate, that with enterprise they're like we need to do something different yeah we need to do something that will re-energize fans and for all of enterprise's lows and i fully admit enterprise has a lot of lows (laughs) enterprise also has a lot of highs 
Mm-hmm. And because of their changing the format and taking chances and, yeah, putting this terrible theme song, um, <laughs> I would say that about seven out of ten times, their chances worked. Yeah. Um, but the I, three times it didn't. Oh, boy. Well, the, yeah, oh, the, man. It's the, the theme three song. out of ten, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we're talking the Enterprise episode, Similitude. It's the tenth episode of the third season. It first aired on November 19th of 2003. The episode was written by Mandy Cotto. This is Cotto's first script for the series. He was brought on as a staff writer for the third season of Enterprise and would contribute 14 scripts total to the show. He was promoted to showrunner for Enterprise's fourth and final season after failing ratings and the box office failure of Star Trek Nemesis had led to a lack of confidence in the leadership of Rick Berman and Brennan Braga. Along with producer Mike Sussman, he steered Enterprise back to its initial conception as a TOS prequel, producing many fan-favorite episodes and resolving many issues of continuity between Enterprise, TOS, and the TOS film series. The episode was directed by LeVar Burton, who of course needs no introduction, and he became a fairly prolific director for the franchise, directing a total of 29 episodes of post-TOS pre-Discovery Trek. Uh, no Starlog date for this episode, it's not given in the running time, and your assignment, Jason, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of Similitude. Oh boy, uh, don't count that. No, uh, no. <laughs> uh, a is, that a, is that a quantum... Word? 25 word synopsis, yeah. Oh boy, do I have to count them out or you count them? <laughs> Remember, I'm bad at math. Do your best. Um, okay. The engines of the the engines of the NX01 shut down, forcing the ship to uh, to clone their injured main engineer who is the only one that can fix the engines morality issues and tears <laughs> happen that's exactly 25 words morality and tears <laughs> star trek enterprise <laughs> that's perfect here's some interesting facts from the, our memory banks about this episode this episode is an episode of first from a chronological view of the franchise as many enterprise episodes are this is the first mention of a tricorder in the franchise chronologically and the only mention of a tricorder in enterprise this is the first time we see a funeral on board ship in the franchise from a chronological perspective. It's also the first time we see a crew member buried in space via photon torpedo casing, or in this instance, a photonic torpedo. This episode also establishes that the NX shuttle pods do not have a head aboard, so short trips only in the shuttle pods. It's also interesting to note that when the shuttle pods are attempting to tow the NX-01, Lieutenant Reed measures the force being applied to Enterprise in kilodynes. Dynes are a part of the CGS, or centimeter-gram-second system of units, a precursor to the general adoption of SI, or the International System of Units, known colloquially as the metric system. Nearly all measurements in Trek series are given generally in metric units. The metric unit of force is the Newton. This episode was popular with both fans and the show's creators. Brandon Braga praised the episode. He specifically cited the heightened moral tension of its placement within the Zindi arc and the revelation to T'Pol of Tripp's feelings for her without Tripp himself being aware. Flock's actor John Billingsley called Similitude one of the third season's strongest hours, and fans voted the episode as the third best episode of the series in a UPN poll. The and third best? That's what they said. And of course, this is, um, I think they took this poll before like the last five or six episodes of okay. the series okay. had aired. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, with an asterisk there. And this episode would go on to win an Emmy for music composition. 
Let's talk about the guest stars in the episode, all of whom are younger versions of Trip, or in this case, Sim. Shane Sweet appears as Sim at 17. Sweet's first recurring role was that of Seven Wanker on the Fox series Married with Children. I don't remember that character. He would go on to... He would, he would go on to a number of TV guest appearances in the 90s and early 2000s. He transitioned into voice acting in the early aughts, and he continues to voice act to this day. He's also done voice work for a number of features, including Deadpool, La La Land, and Terminator Dark Fate. Adam Taylor Gordon appears as Sim at eight years old. Taylor Gordon appeared as a young trip previously in the third season premiere, The Zindi, in a dream sequence. Gordon had a short career in Hollywood, but he would go on to appear in the feature films Cellular and Cheaper by the Dozen. And Maximilian Orion Kesmodel, wow, appears as Sim at age four. Kesmodel would also have an abbreviated Hollywood career, but he had a recurring role as young David on Six Feet Under, as well as appearing in the feature Max Keeble's Big Move, and he had guest roles on the series Charmed and ER. Well, let's talk about the episode itself. And of course, this episode is set in the Delphic Expanse, which is this strange Bermuda Triangle-like area of space where weird things happen to ships. And it's part of the season three of Enterprise. It's essentially, uh, as you mentioned before, it's a season-long story arc of them trying to reach the, the Zindi homeworld and stop them from using their super weapon. And it's ironic to me that for years... Trek writers had tried to tell long stories and had tried to add serialization to the franchise, to their respective series. And the higher ups like Berman and Braga were stopping them at every turn from doing that. And then Braga and Berman get, you know, sort of the head writership or the control of Enterprise after it's, they create it. And they try to do the exact same thing. And it's like, why, why is it OK now? Yeah. So every episode in season three of Enterprise, as I like to call it, not Star Trek Enterprise, um, <laughs> is connected to the Zindi arc. Even the episode that is one of my favorites, the cowboy episode called North Star, has a little bit, they all get like a little nugget connected to the Zindi arc. Like there's something. And to be honest with you, I remember when they, because I was watching Enterprise Live, and I remember they announced the Zindi arc. A lot of people were like, oh man, this is never going to work. And I've rewatched really? it a couple of times. And I actually think it for for an arc, it builds very nicely. There's a couple of nice turns, like about a quarter of the way in, they change the expectation. And then it, the buildup to them chasing down the weapon is pretty epic. Yeah. It's so interesting that like fans thought that that wouldn't work because, of course, like it's been a while since the end of DS9, but... Yeah. You know, that's how the DS9 wrapped up. Like Hans Beamler, Robert Wolf, Ron Moore, these guys turned the last season of DS9 into like a season long epic. And really, they, they did this while Berman and Braga, ironically, were off making Voyager, so they couldn't stop them. And I think they were ahead of their time in a lot of ways because most genre shows now are serialized. Like they keep the storytelling going from week to week. And the streaming model has only helped to solidify that as the way TV stories are told in the 21st century. Yeah, you're very right. Like, there's a lot of ways, and I think some fans would argue, is it Babylon 5 or is it D-Space 9 that truly introduced serialized television mm -hmm. uh, to modern TV? And either way, they are both they were both around the same time in the early 90s. Yeah, they were both pioneers of that storytelling method. I mean, I remember um, the last 10 episodes of D-Space 9 being so interconnected that you were just like, I can't believe they're doing this. Like, mm -hmm. it's so, but I, actually, to be honest with you, I'm so glad they did it that way. Yeah. And it also makes you take a step back from Deep Space Nine and wonder, should they have done that for the entire series? How much stronger would that have series have been? Would the series have been stronger or weaker? I don't know. It's a fair argument either way. It's tough to determine. Yeah. I mean, they certainly didn't, it, they didn't hit the reset button every time. I mean, the, the stakes that they would set would remain, 
But yeah, I mean, it would be an Odo thing one week, a Quark thing the next week, then some Dominion War arc. And yeah, it wasn't continually, you know, adding a new chapter to to the novel that is DS9, although I've heard it described as, you know, novel television. Well, the other thing about it, too, is that I would make the argument to several people that um, I think that Voyager would have been so much stronger if it had been serialized. There's the mm. classic story of Voyager. I don't know if uh, it's one of the reasons because like, Ronald Moore, before he went off and created Battlestar Galactica, was a writer on Star Trek Voyager. Right. And they were trying to pitch the entire fourth season as Year of Hell. Right, right. They wanted to do it every episode yeah. and and like bang the ship up and stuff like that. And brought on, I think uh, Rick Berman said no. And that <laughs> that I, I've always heard that as the story of that. That's what made Ronald D. Moore be like, I'm out for right, Star Trek. I'm going to make Battlestar Galactica. Bye. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And if you notice, Battlestar Galactica picks up a lot of those threads. Yeah, it really does. And Braun and Braga, I think, took a lot of those threads and put them here because the Zindi arc is very much by the time the third season of Enterprise ends, the NX-01 has holes in it. Yeah. The yeah. size of like a football field. Yeah. I, yeah. They're, they're really beat up when they finally get get to their mission. Um, I was trying to figure out what makes an uh, a story on Enterprise an Enterprise story specifically. You know, they're they're boldly going. Great they, question. they have a similar mission to the other crews, but do you think that there's a singular thing that that sets an Enterprise story off from its predecessors? First off, I just want to give you a huge compliment because I, I've been on a bunch of other Star Trek fan, uh, podcasts because I love Star Trek, and that quite possibly might be the best question I've ever been asked about Star Trek. <laughs> just um, what? super open-ended questions that we can't oh, answer. Love, the best, well, the no, best question. That's, a, that's <laughs> such an interesting way to think about it, right? Like what makes this an Enterprise? What makes a, what makes it an Enterprise episode over a Voyager or Deep Space Nine? Yeah. Um, I have some bad answers if you want to hear them. I'd love to hear them, sure. <laughs> I don't think this defines the whole series, but I have to point just emotionally to the hostility that you see between the crew members, especially in this episode, <laughs> okay. there's a different emotional tenor. Uh, like when, you know, clearly we've got a conflict here because we've got a new trip who's basically the old trip and Archer goes to him and it would be a conversation between say, you know, Riker and Picard. That would be a heartfelt thing. But instead trips like, what are you going to put a gun to my head? And Archer's like, if you were really trip, you'd know the answer to that. It's like, whoa, you guys are, fr I, I, he's a different trip, but you guys are friends still. Come on. What's going on here? Dial it down. Uh, it's interesting. Yeah. That line is a little far, but also that line is a little bit, is a little bit closer to the, the pioneer aspect we talked about mm -hmm. where Archer has no choice. Archer needs that engine. And it's the idea of like, if I got to shoot this trip clone to get it, I'm going to do it because otherwise we're all dead. If Star Trek um, is wagon train, maybe this is Star Trek's is. rifleman. This is Star Trek's, I would almost say Donner Party uh, oh, or, or, or Oregon Trail. Like they Oregon have Trail, to, there we go. <laughs> yeah, they have to succeed or else everybody's going to get scurvy. Yeah. Um, yeah, or dysentery. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe not they're going to eat each other. Although the, there was that Vulcan episode in The Expanse where uh, the, the Vulcans, I guarantee you, ate each other. Yeah. Um, You know, for me, I think you're, you kind of hit on something. But instead of the aggression, I would say that I think what makes an Enterprise episode an Enterprise or what distinguishes it is the heart. Mm -hmm. I think Enterprise wears its emotionality and its heart on its sleeve more so than any other Trek series. Um, and I don't mean like, 
like the melodrama that Discovery does sometimes. I think that's something that Discovery is very guilty of is it goes flat out melodrama very quickly. But I think I think that's, I think more... that's what's on sale. I don't think that they're. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, necessarily, yeah. yeah. And I, I would almost say that that's more of a uh, symptom of just modern television than Discovery. Yeah. But um, Enterprise very much does this thing where if a character is sad, they make sure we know it. Yeah. And if a character is angry, they make sure we know it. And a lot of time in Inter- a lot of times in Enterprise, they don't go out of their way to explain that a person is mad or a person is sad. They just like show you a scene. And a lot of times, yeah, they'll have the other characters be like, why is he so angry? Or why is he so Mm -hmm. sad? You know, but they won't have the character state it. Yeah. And I, I also think that that is a, is a reasoning because of the previous three series that were almost emotionless. Yeah. I kind of, I think that fans don't like Hoshi a lot, but I kind of like Hoshi because she just experiences those emotions. You know, she's she's kind of a coward. Like She's terrified. They're out in space. And it, to Archer, it's fun and it's exploration. But to her, it's like scary and inconvenient, you know. And I like the fact that she expresses those emotions. And sometimes it doesn't make her super effective in crisis. But I, I like that, too. And I like that, you know, again, like Trip is the guy that wants to fix the car. Yeah. Reed is the guy that's like, man, we have the biggest grenades Let's that have ever been built by here. humanity. Yeah. <laughs> and I want to blow them up. Yeah, please. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, so like, yeah, I do. Like all of these characters are sort of the um, natural progress or the furthest extreme of those archetypes that we had seen on previous series. Yeah. And we can identify with them for that reason. Yeah. I mentioned before that Enterprise seems to steer more into the military fiction side of its premise. You know, later we meet um, the Makos, a, a Marine-like division of soldiers who are specifically there to fight. Um, I love the Makos. I really do. Their their roles would be absorbed by, they'd just be yellow shirts, you know, in like TNG. Yes. Um, and it makes sense for the era in which the show is set. But do you think that Trek was feeling the pressure from other more action or military-based series like Firefly or Battlestar? Um, I think so. Yeah. I do think so. I think that's a very valid observation. Um, you know, and it's interesting to note that when when the Makos are introduced in season three, they do make a very big deal about them in the in the beginning of the season, and then they kind of just disappear. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But when you think about it logically from a writer's perspective, the Makos make absolute sense because if Starfleet is like sort of the future Air Force, then the Makos are the future Marines. Yeah. Um, and it makes sense that there would also be a future Navy and a future Army that we just have never seen before. Um, you know, and and also like, I mean, it's one of the things I like about Star Trek Beyond is that uh, spoilers for Star Trek Beyond. <laughs> are, am I spoiling Star Trek Beyond for you? No, I've still I've seen it. Yeah. Okay. Um, that you know the character. Um, I can't remember the character's Krall. name, but the character Frawl is a Mako. Yeah. Um, I love that reveal because, and yes, you have to assume that, you know, um, all of those organizations are sort of just folded into Starfleet, which becomes the Armada peacekeeping wing, as they say in a later movie, to all of the United Federation of Planets. Yeah. And that Starfleet just gets the name because they were the ones on the NX-01. They were the first people to go out there and do this. Yeah, yeah. Something that I think that divides Trek from true military fiction is, of course, the ideals of the Federation, uh, or in this case, I guess, the ideals of Starfleet as the exploratory wing of the United Earth government. But also that the captain of a starship 
has full responsibility for what happens when they're on a mission. You know, they have commanding officers, they've got regulations, but when you're in the middle of the Delphic Expanse or you're on the edge of known space and you can't get a call back to headquarters, it's kind of up to your discretion how you tackle the problem and how you represent the Federation. Exactly. It's like the old captains of sailing ships across yeah. the Atlantic and the Pacific. You're on your own. Yeah. And a lot of, you know, terrible choices are going to have to be made. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, some captains are going to be able to handle that well and, and be okay, and and some captains are going to turn into absolute monsters, which, to be <laughs> honest with you, to me, sets up um, the rogue captains of the original series yeah. way better than anybody ever thought of. Like, Enterprise, I think, sets that up quite well. where Because yeah. in, in the original series, captains are going evil left and right. Yeah. Yeah. But if you think about that Starfleet had a hundred years of just you're on your own, sucker, figure it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. You get that in TOS. People crazy. You get yeah, you get that in TOS sometimes. Characters who are just like, What are we doing out here? Like we shouldn't be out yeah. here. We're in the middle and of nowhere. Kirk, yeah, and even Kirk in a lot of those episodes is kinda if he doesn't figure it out, they're dead. Yeah. And they have to, to totally face the complete unknown. Um, Mm -hmm. on earth currently, you know, you can call anybody anywhere at any time for the most part. So, you know, if you're a soldier in the military, you know, you have contact with your superior officers, you get an order, you can confirm that order and you can question that order, but there's always a superior officer that you're taking orders from. And at least for yourself, you know, your responsibility is sort of deferred if you're following somebody's orders, but starship captains in the middle of nowhere, the buck stops with them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, and that leads to this idea of this ethical conundrum that, like, mm-hmm. makes this series, like, so real. I mean, it's so interesting because um, it was sort of a sci-fi, I don't want to say trope, but again, I don't have a better word. Mm-hmm. In the early, mid-2000s, when cloning was, like, starting to become <laughs> very real. Yeah. And there is a bunch of other science fiction storylines. There's an Andrew Garfield movie, I believe, kind of about the same thing. That's about an organ farm. Yes. And it's about these people. I cannot remember the name of that movie. Uh, but Never it's like, Let Me Go. There you go. Yes. There you go. And it's so like this thread was sort of coming up a lot in um, in science fiction. And so I appreciate that Star Trek had its finger on the pulse and was sort of like, oh, what's our version of this? Which led to this episode. Because those to me are always the best Star Trek episodes or the ones where it's like, what is the consciousness of the world sort of thinking about? Let's work that out through science fiction. Yeah, Star Trek is always about what's going on right now today. Um, And that's the situation that we see in this episode. Like Archer has to make this, this, this tough decision and it's, let's be honest, it's super questionable from an ethical perspective. I, I was, it is. I was it describing, is I was describing the plot of the episode to my girlfriend and I was telling her, yeah, so the doctor tells Archer they can make a clone of Trip and they can take brain parts from him to fix the original Trip. And the clone, you know, he has a, a two week lifespan and she's like, oh yeah, that's, that's super ethical. Yeah. <laughs> Hard Star Trek heroes. But the scenario that Archer finds himself in which is, you know, we can do this and basically sell a piece of our souls and watch our friend die. But the alternative to that is we all die. The mission fails. All of Earth looks like Florida does now. And there is no choice for Archer. Nobody's coming to help. Like, this is all they can do. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing, right, about it is that if you are the leader put in that position, if your mission fails, all 8 billion people or 9 billion people, or I don't, I don't know how many people are on Earth in the 22nd century, sure. die. They're yeah. all dead. If you fail, so to be honest with you, it's like, hmm, 
and the only way you can succeed in your mission is you need your main engineer, then to be honest with you, this seems like a pretty easy answer. It's funny because, um, and maybe this is something that I do more than other people or writers do a lot, I would say, is because a lot of times you have to put yourself into the boots of the character you're thinking about. Sure. And I, and I find a lot of times viewers were just automatically like, ah, I can't see it from his viewpoint. Ah, that's terrible. That's not ethical. <laughs> but when you think about it from Archer's viewpoint, and yeah. you're, you're the you're responsible for these 85 people. You're responsible for the 8 billion people back on Earth. And Flox gives you this choice. Yeah. I don't see any scenario where any captain doesn't make that choice. Yeah. And they kind of, they, they kind of like give it away when it opens with Tripp's funeral. And you're pretty sure that Tripp's not going to die at this point. Um, yes. But, it, but the whole well, what episode. What a great teaser, though. Oh, it's a great tease. And the whole episode, once you kind of figure that out, becomes this twist of the knife of. You know, it's not Trip, but it is Trip. He's got his memories, his ingenuity, and he's looking for a way out. He's kind of scrambling. And to add to the tragedy, there might be an enzyme that could help him live, but it would be trading old Trip essentially, or yeah, old Trip for new Trip. And plus, maybe the doctor knew that this was never going to work out, but it had to be done. Yeah. Well, again, it's it's a lot of it. Again, it goes back to that pioneer attitude. And that's the thing I love about <laughs> Enterprise is this idea of, well, we could do this, but it's going to be held together by scotch tape. Do yeah. you want to do it? And and on Enterprise, they always say yes. Whereas like if you were on the Enterprise D, they Picard would be like, we need further study. Yeah, we got to just back out of this. We'll come back when we know more. Yeah. Data, have you run an experiment on that yet? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> have Wesley use some nanites to fix it. And then two acts pass, and then they just make that decision anyway. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, this is like really like the true Trek needs of the many situation. Yeah. I was thinking about it. This is kind of, this is their Tuvix. It is. Yeah. It is. And I think I like Tuvix. I like that Tuvix episode yeah, quite I a bit. Yeah, I do too. I do too. And, but, but Archer never gets the crap that Janeway got, got for Tuvix though. <laughs> I that is fair. Um, I guess the the difference is is that Sim had a ticking clock, whereas Tuvix didn't. Like Tuvix could have lived a very long life. Oh sure. Um, whereas like Sim was gonna die in seven days anyway. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, um, you know, have you ever seen um a lot? Talk about this episode again with you. Have you ever seen the uh, the first season episode of Enterprise, Dear Doctor? Yeah. Okay. I have a, it's funny when you mentioned the top three episodes, I, I have a feeling I bet that's number one on whatever that list is, but that's another amazing episode. And it's basically an episode baked around the prime directive doesn't exist at this time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and you know, flocks wants to help. There's two species on the planet. One species is dying and one species is thriving. Mm -hmm. And flocks figures out that what is killing the original species is that basically it's evolution. They are dying because the planet is intentionally killing them so that the other species can thrive. Yeah. Um, and Archer's like, we, we got to help the more civilized, the more, you know, rich, the more civilized, the more richer, the more futuristic species instead of the caveman species. And right. Phlox refuses and it yeah. leads into this big argument. Yeah. Um, and it's such a brilliant episode. Um, and Archer finally decides to go with Phlox. But again, it's one of those things where like we only like that episode because we know what the prime directive is. Or we know that in this universe, they, they work by the rules of this prime directive, this non-interference clause. Yeah. But in modern day, I don't know if any nation or nation state on Earth 
would side with Fox. I almost think all of them would side with Archer. Yeah, I think we've seen that play out in history again and again. Yeah, right? Yeah. Um, it, but but we have the benefit of knowing like what the Star Trek is. And, I, and it's interesting because I kind of feel the issue in similitude is very same, although it's baked in with a lot more emotion. Because again, like I love what they do with Sim. The, the writing on Sim is so good. And uh, I'm so glad that you brought up the music earlier too because mm-hmm. I have like uh, the soundtracks for Enterprise. Oh, really? Right. And the score for this episode is, I would put it down in, it is one of Star Trek's best episode, episodic scores. That's, um, it's something that, I don't know, I, sometimes they talk about like um, stage elements like lighting and, and, and scenery. If you're noticing them, they're not doing a good job because they're taking away from the drama. But like the music is something that often you, you don't think to listen to or, or you sort of miss unless it's being you know, showcased or framed like the theme or, or something like that. And uh, Trek, all the composers on Trek do such a good job of yes of putting a bed down for for the drama that's happening. This is a pretty good Flox uh, episode, um, just in general. And I like the 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 kind of moral swings or the or the the swing in situations that he has because he's the one who sort of creates this out of one of his weird creatures, you know, in his in his sick bay. And then he has to raise him, which he does very tenderly, but he does it knowing that he'll have to, you know, eventually kill him, essentially, or at least watch him die. And when he's, you know, he's doing his medical log and he's kind of cradling the baby. And first, first, I want to know where they get a baby bottle from. <laughs> they can't they can't replicate anything. Uh, and there's no kids on board. So I don't know where they got well, a, a Gerber baby bottle from. They have some sort of 3D printer, though. That's because true. They, because they do make parts. Yeah, that's true. And yeah, 3D printer, which I think was probably not like extant. It was not real when the, when the show was made. But yeah, you're probably right about that. Or he's got yeah. some baby alien monkey that he feeds with it. Or, that or is fair. Like that. I mean, I, I would. Flox is the one doctor of all of Star Trek without a replicator that'd be like, yeah, he has a he has a baby bottle always on. Hand. He's got a junk drawer filled with stuff somewhere. Yeah. yeah, he's got all kinds of stuff in that in that bag, man. <laughs> and I, I just love early in the episode when he's he's feeding the baby and he's talking about you know, raising a human child and and he isn't weirded out. And like Topol and Archer are just like, ugh, they want nothing to do with this. But they're like weirded out that he's not weirded out. <laughs> like there's just like, like this complicated sort of well, and, moral exchanges happening. That's one of the smarter character bits that they do with Flocks. And they do that throughout this series is that Flocks is one of the few main character aliens that truly has a different perspective. Yeah, he's aliens. Yeah. He's very alien and that's something that star trek tends to whitewash away is they tend to have the aliens think like us like the last one that i could think about like neelix basically thought and acted exactly like starfleet so did kess yeah um quark was one that thought very differently from the rest of the crew but i think the only reason why he did is because he wasn't starfleet but like you know, Worf basically on TNG basically acted like Starfleet and humans. Like yeah. he didn't, he w- yeah, he growled a little bit more, but you know, and yeah, he wanted to punch people more, but he kind of <laughs> just kind of thought like how Starfleet did. So flocks to, you know, be so accepting. And of course there were early episodes of enterprise um, where they were trying to get their sex factor up where flocks was just like, yeah, let's just have sex with everyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they, they played that to great effect with the crew being weirded out by that. But for Flox, he was like, look, I come from a place where everybody has three wives and three husbands. This is okay. Yeah. 
yeah, we're just different. Don't 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 get weirded out. It's it's just normal. Yeah. Um. I actually think I actually think that Flocks, um, Doctor Flocks, amazingly played by John Billingsley, yeah, is actually one of the best Star Trek characters of all the series. Yeah. He's so talented, and we we tend to give the the glory laud and honor to actors who you know show a lot of range or or yelling or very dramatic. But it's it's tough to play a character with an with such an even temper and yet give it shades, you know, and give it different degrees. And he does uh, he does a really good job at that. Yes, he does. Yeah. Um, this episode, like a lot of Trek episodes, features a doppelganger or a double of one of our characters, and I like how they use there they continue to use the long tradition of using somebody who looks like our familiar character to forward a storyline that's kind of marking time for the regular characters in this case the to paul trip romance yes and to be honest with you it's interesting because it's an interesting thing that at the beginning of this season season three you could tell that that was one of their goals usually in like most writers rooms when you start out you'll put up on the board, these are our season-long goals. Like, by the time we get to the end of the season, we want these things to happen. Yeah. And so you could tell with Enterprise Season 3, they obviously were like, okay, by the time we get to the end of the season, we want to Paul and Trip to be together. And they started out pretty strong with that in Season 3. Mm-hmm. And they kind of put it in the back burner until this episode and this episode is actually the reason why like this is the episode that forces both of these characters to be honest with how they feel about each other yeah um and they do that because you know there's no better um focus than death like you know (laughs) if you don't if you if you don't say it now you'll never get to say it yeah um and it's funny because um when you first invited me to, to be on this podcast like a couple months ago um I started with this episode and then I re- I, I went forward and rewatched all the rest of Enterprise. Oh really? Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and in oh no, it's fine. I I actually quite enjoyed it. Um again. Um but for future episodes when the previously on Enterprise, they would show the kiss mm. from this episode in multiple previously on Enterprises. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they always do that. They use clones or or, uh, or time displaced characters, you know, or doubles or something to like get that kiss in or have somebody confess something to somebody. I don't, you know, I don't mind that because I think in this episode again, and I, and I know I keep I keep putting down, but like again, the character arc of Sim is so amazing. Yeah, and it's interesting because there are lots of doppelganger episodes, and to me, the most infamous one is the Commander Riker when he finds Lieutenant Riker on the planet. Um, And a lot of that episode falls flat. To be honest with you, when I end that that episode, I'm kind of like, you know, I don't care about Thomas Riker. I really don't care. (laughs) Um, And they could have done something very strong with that um, by letting C. Riker, oh, this is where I was 15 years ago or 12 years ago. I don't remember the time of distance, but like they really could have played up because they they sort of dabbled with it, but that's a different type of storytelling of TNG compared to Enterprise. Yeah. They really could have played with this is a Riker that loves Deanna. Yeah. That mm-hmm. is going to marry Deanna. But instead they were just kind of like, oh, they went to dinner once. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's called second chances, right? Like, yeah, there you go. I, and I think the original pitch was to replace William Riker with Thomas Riker and they backed, out, backed out of that. There's so many spots where you can just kind of write off like the death of Riker as a character. Like I like Riker, but really the, the advancement is he takes over the enterprise at the end of best of both worlds. Right. Like that's what you oh, do with yeah. Riker, but they yep. didn't. 
And then they move up to like, there's other ones, but you go to season six. Here's a chance to like bring on a different new Riker. They don't do that. And so he just becomes the guy who's just the XO for like 15 years. Yeah. And it becomes really weird because when you first meet Riker, one of the first things Riker says in the first season. He wants a command, yeah. and he and and he says that he wants to be the youngest captain in Starfleet. Yeah. Um, and then when he starts turning down commands, you're like, that doesn't fit your character at all. I always thought that there's a, there was an episode in the run of TNG that was missing, that we needed an episode that Riker finally admitted why he turned down all those commands. And to be honest with you, since they eventually married off Deanna and... Riker anyways I was hoping that we would get some episode where Riker was like you know I realized that I love you Deanna and that's the reason why I didn't that's the reason why I never took another command because I didn't want to leave you again I left you once on Beta mm-hmm. Z many many years ago mm-hmm. and I regretted it ever since mm-hmm. I was never going to leave you again it was I wasn't going to pick my career over you again exactly yeah. and I, I always felt that like just a scene or an episode of that would have fixed all of the Riker problems but because they didn't do that you're kind of like yeah this guy really like tanks his career <laughs> yeah <laughs> it makes good headcanon though I'm going to believe that that happened at some point I hope so that's that's kind of my headcanon for yeah. this, yes. Um, I love all the weird things that happen in the Delphic Expanse. And this one in particular is really cool and dangerous. Like one thing they should definitely do is throw some magnets, you know, or some or some iron, just some pieces of metal or something into this cloud because this thing is like death for ships. And if you just throw some something magnetic out there, hopefully in a couple of years, it'll all clump together into like a big metal ball or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. You just throw some block out there and it's... <laughs> yeah, I mean, just the fact that like these space barnacles get all over the ship. It's like, that's, that's cool. I don't know if we've like I seen mean, something like that before. I, I will say that, yeah, the inciting incident of like all these particles um, is a little goofy, but there are plenty of episodes of Star Trek out there that make all kinds of gobbledygook. Like there are so many episodes where they're like, oh, our phasers don't work. Why? Well, it's a duonetic field. And you're like, well, what's yeah. a duonetic field? Uh, yeah. Some Star Trek thing. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's the thing that we need the plot to happen. You yeah. Know? Um, so that's what these are. Um, but you know, one thing I really appreciate with the Delphic Expanse is that in a lot of these episodes in this season, the Delphic Expanse is very weird and it is very strange. And for a show that is basically set pre TOS and pre TNG, where we see that by the time of TNG, the Federation is pretty normal. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people may not consider this, but if you look at the official maps, the star charts, the Delphic Expanse, um, by the time of the 24th century, is very much in the Federation by the time of the 24th century. Sure. Um, so I appreciate that they were like, you know what? Most viewers will think that this is not a strange area because they've seen the later shows. So yeah. let's create an intentionally weird and strange and laws of physics don't work because that way we make it dangerous for our characters. Yeah. And it's something that doesn't get referenced on the show a lot. And I don't think they have to necessarily, but the way just a slow creep of expansion of the Federation and they're seeking the unknown, but more and more is becoming known. And it even happens in a way to the Delta Quadrant, you know, when Voyager goes out there, I'm sure if they, they haven't tackled this in like Picard yet, but I'm sure they've got, outposts in the Delta Quadrant using 
quantum slipstream or or something like that. Like there's always yeah, the Delphic Expanse is this really weird area, but now it's just in their backyard. It's like don't step in mm-hmm. the pothole in our backyard. Yeah, it's interesting. It's just I've always I, I like that concept. I understand why they did it. I think it's really good. Um, another thing that I really like that they do in this episode is we get to see the little remote control ship mm. that is in the opening credits that yeah. is also, we hadn't seen it since the pilot. Yeah. And I think having that scene with Archer and Sim and having them recreate the opening scene or one of the fina- the finale scene, excuse me, of the pilot is very emotional and very interesting. Yeah. It's really neat. Do you know, just as a, uh, a huge Enterprise fan, do you know if we've seen that model before, like on his desk or something like that? I, you know, to be honest with you, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. I, I don't think it's on his desk at all, and I don't think it's in his quarters at all either. But I, I know that that's like the first time we've seen it since the pilot. Yeah, I can believe that he took it with him too, it being his his father's, it, the ship yes. is his father's design. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a touching, that's a touching scene. Um, as we wrap things up here, is there anything that you've left unsaid about similitude? The one thing that I would say is that in Star Trek, there are a lot of episodes where they put the entire construct, the believability of the episode on one character slash actor. Mm-hmm. And if Connor Trenier was not as good as he was, this entire episode would not work. Yeah. But because he's so good and also um, because the younger versions of him, I actually don't think there's a weak version of Sim in this entire episode. Mm-hmm. I actually think every actor they cast, uh, the teenager and the small kid are all really good. Yeah. The the, the very young kid who's reading the, the War of the Worlds, like he just, I can't remember exactly what it is he says, but he's like, Oh, my mom read this to me. Where are my parents? There's this like kind of sense of, oh, yeah, of dread. Him, like oh. he's cute, but also it's like this kid knows that something's not right. Yeah. And so I will say that like kudos to the casting department of Enterprise <laughs> yeah. for finding these kids. Um, so the acting in this episode is on point. And I, I, I would argue that this is one of the best acted episodes of Enterprise of the entire run. Well, I w- wouldn't disagree. Well, let's talk My Space Dad Can Beat Up Your Space Dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? Uh, I th- For me, it's Captain Sisko. Yeah. Uh, as the best captain. Although I will say, we've been talking about a lot of Enterprise. Archer is my number two yeah. um, for this. But I go Sisko because there's something that a lot of TNG forgot. Picard is so stuffy. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't talk to his crew. And even the final episode of Star Trek Next Generation, All Good Things, is about him being like, oh, this is my family. Cisco mm-hmm. is buddies with his crew from the very beginning. Yeah. He has them over for dinner. He goes to the holodeck with them. But also Cisco is the dude that he he's very clear that he's like, hey, when we're working, we're working. Right. And I'm your boss. Right. You're going to listen to me. And they all respect him for that. Yeah. But they also love him. Because they know him as a real person. Cisco is very much like a real military commander. Interesting. That is how a real military commander operates. Like, there's a line, and then there's also, like, we hey, we all have to blow off steam together because we're in dangerous situations all together. And if you don't blow off steam with the people under your command, they're never going to respect and love you. And they're never going to, like, jump into death. For you, huh. 
And I, and I've always had the feeling that with Picard, that like many people under his command would just be like, yeah, whatever, dude, go ahead and die. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> They'd be like, whatever, man. Okay. Go drink some more tea. Um, we're, Whereas Cisco, I think they 100% earn. I think they do that. They do a very good job with that with Janeway, too. Like, Janeway is friends with her crew, but also there, there's a line. Yeah. There's a line. Yeah. And that's how you operate as a military commander. Um, And that's why also Archer is my, my number two, is because Archer, very early in the first season, they they make it very... We don't get to see all of them, but they make it very clear that Archer has dinner with a different member of the crew every night. Oh. So, like, for the first year of their mission... He's like calling a different person into the captain's mess and just chatting with them. That's cool. Um, and you're like, that's a gr- that is exactly what a military commander would do because you want to know who is your crew yeah. and what are they good at. Yeah. And also who who am I ordering to go to that scary planet? And, you know, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, it informs that a little bit too, right? Yeah. Like like the minute you learn that Hoshi's afraid of everything, you're not well, you're not gonna send her into the deep dark. <laughs> yeah, you just stay on the bridge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas like Trip is like, I volunteer for everything, Captain. Okay, go, Trip. All right, all right, Trip. <laughs> Come back in one piece. Yeah. Now that we've reached the end of the show, you'll receive a commission and the rank of ensign. What department on the ship do you work in? Um, you know, because I'm an ensign and I can decide to have my options open, mm-hmm. as we've seen on the latest episode of Lower Decks. Yes. <laughs> um I uh I'm gonna go with engineering. Okay. Because when I watched TNG back in the day, I always thought Jordy had the best job. Although, I will tell you, the minute I become lieutenant, lieutenant commander, I'm switching to command. Oh, okay. And that's kind <laughs> of like the opposite path of Jordy because he was uh, in command uh, in a red shirt originally and then uh, saw that open, open spot on the uh, chief engineering thing. It's actually the path of Cisco. Remember, mm. Cisco started out in engineering. That's right. That's right. Um, and that worked out. Eventually, it's kind of a crooked yeah. path, but he got there. Well. He got there in the end. Well. <laughs> <laughs> maybe too many years at Utopia Planitia, but it worked out. Yeah. Well, Anson Inman, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can at, at EIST Pod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Jawin. That's J-A-W-I-I-N, or just Google Jason Inman. Uh, Jawin is a code name that I came up with in high school that I thought was cool because it's Jason William Inman. It's all three of my names. Ah, um, okay. Yeah. So that's where you can find everything, including the podcast, Geek History Lesson, which is every single week. We've sure. done a lot of Star Trek episodes, actually. Really? That's great. When you pick yeah. them, what, what criteria do you pick them for? Uh, generally, we tie them around you know, like what's going on in the world. Like, um, when Leonard Nimoy passed away, we decided to do the top five Spock episodes okay, and stuff sure, like that. So sure. it's not that often, but we like to always like tie it into what is going on in the world and how can we connect that to Star Trek? Sure. So get a geek history lesson from there. And also Jupiter jet and the forgotten radio is coming out on October 7th of this year. Yes. And please pre-order that if you've enjoyed any of my answers. And if you haven't, Please pre-order anyways. (laughs) Do it anyways. Well, we're signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. Your Honor, a courtroom is a crucible. In it, we burn away irrelevancies until we are left with a pure product, the truth, for all time. Oh, man, this is so intense. Data is on trial for his life. I know. This episode, The Measure of a Man, is based on the Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision of 1857. Shh.
And every week on Backtracking, we take a look at the real-world events that inspired classic Star Trek episodes. Sorry. Who are you? We're the hosts of Backtracking. I'm Caliban. You will both be taken to the brig and from there to the nearest starbase, where you will answer charges for what you have done. And I'm Gooey Fame. This is not a game! This is life and death. You can follow us on Twitter. Backtracking is available wherever you listen to podcasts. You go f*** yourself.